Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. On this week's episode, we talk about the Welsh firebreak lockdown and you ask us, is it still appropriate to think of Keir Starmer as being on the soft left? So we are recording moments after Mark Drakeford has announced a short, sharp firebreak lockdown for Wales. Stephen, you're fresh from writing a take on it. So without giving us any spoilers of, of the piece you've written, what's your take on it? I think actually the answer of what does it mean is for more than half of people in Wales, very little because Cardiff, Swansea, most of the populated bits of Wales are under some form of some form of lockdown restriction. I think actually, although this is largely being seen and reported in Westminster as about to the fact Keir Starmer has made this call for a circuit break, and this means that the leader of the Labour in Wales and the leader of, of, of Labour in, in England are aligned with one another. I actually think the most important change driving this is Rishi Sunak's tweaks to the furlough scheme, where he has created this, and I'm sure listeners are getting bored of me saying this, but this perverse incentive that if you shut things down, then you can receive a less generous version of the furlough, but still you can receive the furlough. And businesses can receive a combination of grants and loans. And if you are not compelled to shut by the state, then businesses receive the square root of zero. So if you're a global institution and you're seeing cases start to plateau uh, because of the sort of partial lockdown measures you've already taken, you now have this weird policy choice if you're Mark Drakeford, where do you persist with what you've done that seems to be working but you get less economic support from the end of this month? Or do you lock down a bit further because at least that way businesses get more support? The decision is obvious. And I think one of the interesting things, so Andy Burnham, who obviously you interviewed this weekend in a really good piece, and I urge everyone to, to read. Andy Burnham is kind of approaching, has come to the same conclusion, but is approaching it from the other perspective, which is going, there isn't enough economic support in tier three. Therefore, I need to make as much noise as possible about not wanting to be in it in order to fix this problem. Whereas Steve Rotherham has come to the reverse conclusion and gone, tier two is a disaster for my city. I just need to get to tier three with as much economic support as possible. Now, I don't know which of those approaches is right, but what they all speak to is the strange incentive that has been created by Sunak's measures, which is that you are significantly better off going, we're charging, please send the check to the Treasury, than you're going, we think we can try and make these businesses COVID safe, but they'll need some more salary support and a grant, which is just currently a thing that does not exist in government coronavirus strategy anymore. I think that Andy Burnham's intervention, as well as this latest development in Wales 
is bringing to the fore something that we've been saying on this podcast really for a while, perhaps arguably more starkly than Keir Starmer has been making the case that, yeah, as you say, Stephen, there isn't sufficient economic support underpinning these tighter measures. And I suppose like the, the conclusion you could easily come to is that the government is trying to bring in regional lockdowns on the cheap that it's kind of we're slowly approaching a return to like the the lockdowns of the first wave but trying to do it in a less expensive way because there's a feeling in the treasury that we can't afford it anymore and people like Andy Burnham are the ones I mean he he argued on the Mar show at the weekend that really everyone in the country should be should be pleased that he's making a whole racket about tier three because it's really easy to conceive of a situation in which because this is regional and not national, there isn't an outcry all at once over the lower level of support for lockdowns. And so you, like, he's basically arguing that we need local figures making the case when their area is going to be put into tougher restrictions to highlight the sort of the lower level of the furlough scheme and the difficult situation that businesses are being put in sort of before it's too late for those individual areas. Yeah. And what I think is really interesting is that, so, you know, the accusation of, of some people in government or some some conservatives who are sympathetic to the government is that Andy Burnham and Keir Starmer with their various calls for different types of lockdowns are trying to play politics with the situation. But I, I, I do think that's a really unfair accusation because what what they're really trying to do here, regardless of sort of the ins and outs of what kind of lockdown they want, is trying to get the government to put its money where its mouth is because Ultimately, if you're locking down different regions to different extents, then really you're losing business and you're losing hours for those businesses that were so affected and and so helped by the furlough the first time round. So you are putting the economy on ice again, except you're not giving any help for it. So so really, if they want to have you can't have a lockdown or any measure of lockdown without substantial economic support for the for the sectors that are so hard hit by it and the job support scheme has proved itself not to be enough for for those places because you have people who work in hospitality employers who say well you know we would do the job support scheme we would we would keep people on part-time but we don't have those part-time hours we don't have those hours for people to work and that's always been the sort of strange sort of paradox of the post furlough or post full furlough support that's been coming from the treasury since the like 80% of wages being paid scheme which is that okay fine you know you can you can try and support people's jobs and try and support employers but the demand has to be there the actual work has to be there and that's not going to be there in areas that are under tier three tier two you know like Stephen wrote you know has written numerous times during this whole period that lockdowns are sort of in general bottom up you know people respond to what they're seeing what they're hearing you know what they're experiencing in their families and and friends around them and adjust their behavior accordingly and although people are saying that these kind of tiered regional lockdowns are easier for people to break and there's less compliance we still know that the majority have an appetite for harsher restrictions and the majority are trying to comply. I suppose the the big question is whether a regional approach could work. I mean, the consensus on this podcast is that a regional approach, as it currently looks, is not the correct way. Because as Stephen has written, 
areas that aren't in lockdown will be affected by the lockdowns in other places, especially given the situation at the moment where most of the economic hubs in the UK are under some form of restrictions of of higher restrictions. But it's the big kind of policy argument that, you know, there are parts of the country, this is a case that Boris Johnson has tried to make and, and plenty of Conservative MPs are making, you know, there are parts of the country where cases are much lower and they think, you know, that it's better to keep those parts going rather than a kind of blanket approach that tars everyone with the same brush. I'm just wondering what you both think of that. I mean, is there a possible world in which you could improve a regional lockdown approach or the advice from SAGE and from various studies seems to be that the only way to get on top of this would be a full national lockdown, which is clearly the approach that Wales has decided to take. What do you think of the sort of the overarching regional versus national question? Well, I do remember that that was one of the possibilities at the beginning of all of this before, you know, before the summer, a suggestion of regional lockdowns was there. And one of the arguments against it, you know, for a while, it was seen as a complete no, no, because the argument against it was that that means that some parts of the country could recover from the initial lockdown faster than others. And that would create more regional inequality. So really, I guess if, if regional lockdowns were to work, then you would have to try and mimic the way the economy was working elsewhere as much as possible possible in the lockdown area, which is obviously not what the Treasury want to do. And I don't think that's really a reality either, because the economy isn't really functioning as it would be anyway, and everywhere's interconnected. So, you know, if you want to go on holiday or visit family members somewhere outside of your zone, you might not because you you might not feel comfortable going to somewhere that's got harsher measures or you might not be allowed to or you might decide that you want to spend more time in your local area because that feels safer to you so I think all sorts of sort of behavioral choices during a pandemic affect not just your own area but the areas where you've left I mean a simple example is that that we're not going into city centres as much as we used to, which I've I've written about at length on, on the New Statesman website. So I won't bore you here, but you know, every decision that you make in your local area affects other parts of the country because of the nature of what you're not doing as well as the nature of what you are doing. So I can see it being really difficult to make it work. And just speaking to people who have tried to operate in in local lockdowns. I always come back to the example of the restaurant owner in, in Leicester who was saying that even after they, they were lifted from their local lockdown, you remember they were the sort of guinea pigs of the local lockdown, he was finding it really mm. difficult to get business, not only from within Leicester, because everyone had been frightened and also economically impacted by the local lockdown, but also from areas around it and, and from afar in the rest of the country, which had read about the fact that it had been under a local lockdown, etc. So I do think that regional or local lockdowns are quite a difficult thing to make work. So I have some sympathy there. But ultimately, if you're if the economic support isn't forthcoming, then no kind of lockdown really works. So I don't see any particular reason, with the massive disclaimer that I'm not a scientist and therefore I should shut my mouth, but I don't see any particular reason why a regional lockdown can't, in theory, work. The problem is, is then isn't, and what I thought was, so yeah, the, the context of this letter from Tory MPs going, well, our places are fine, is actually what they're completely wrong about is, I'm sorry, if you're the MP for, for Devon and you think that, well, Central Devon, and you think that you are, your your area is fine because all of England's great cities are locked down, you fundamentally have not understood what it is Devon's economy does. 
Like it's just like you know. I'm sorry. I know that cities are full of godless people who vote for the Labour Party and remain, but um, but they are unfortunately <laughs> quite a big part of why it is anyone in Devon has a job. I, I think this is kind of the mad thing is that like regional lockdowns, I think, are a great solution if you want to avoid the personally sort of enervating misery that that a lockdown is socially right. You know, all the kind of mental health costs mm. of the lockdown, and I think one of the things which I have found interesting about some of the commentary on the reaction to London going into tier two is people going, oh, you know, like this has been what the North of England has has experienced for however many months. And it's like, well, that is fundamentally untrue because of the looming end of the furlough, which is one of the reasons why if you look at our own journalism, we've shifted from talking a lot about the mental health costs Mm. and the knock-on health costs of these regional lockdowns, which are serious and are severe, to the economic cliff edge created by them in a couple of months, right? So, I mean, to take, you know, just because it's top of mind and it's a very personal example, right? Like, it's my fifth wedding anniversary in two weeks. Oh, congratulations. congratulations. Oh, well, thank you. So I, wasn't, I wasn't even fishing for it, but thank you. I, <laughs> I, I appreciate, appreciate it. So, obviously, like, we were slash are planning to go away somewhere to, actually, ironically, one of the places that, uh, you know, is had sending that, like, we're all right, Jack. <laughs> well actually no like the hotel in in like in your lovely bucolic constituency is not all right because if we're not going to go which okay obviously the government hasn't compelled us not to but you know we're technically went to because we're in a tier two area right if we're not going to go to your area then you still need to be able to access the furlough those businesses still need to be able to access grants otherwise we've we've created this weird situation right where if you are a business in the United Kingdom, you have an active interest in allowing COVID to spread. Mm. Yeah, like if so, so let's take say our own area here, here in London, right? Where like nominally business restaurants aren't allowed to serve people who are outside of the same household, but if they turn that customer away, they receive no additional economic support. They receive no furlough. Whereas if they just go, oh yeah, table of six people of varying ages must be a home of multiple occupation i guess and covid spreads freely and eventually they're compelled to shut well they're quids in because they they can they can claim these schemes and i think the central problem with government policy is not that it's regional it's that it makes sense from a kind of criminology as in like what does rishi sunak want what does mm. i don't know why i mispronounced sunak there but we're just going to glide over it what does matt hancock want what can boris johnson not decide between those two approaches but if your thing is actually to go what is a coherent and sustainable covid position it doesn't make sense i think that's so true and really very obvious now that london has moved into tier two in just multiple small ways as you say in hospitality venues I think it's quite striking that I don't think that there have been any reported outbreaks in restaurants or bars that use the NHS COVID app so since the beginning of the unlocking we've been asked to give our leave our names and numbers and you can now check into them through the app and through the app not a single restaurant has said, hi, we've, we've had a COVID outbreak, even though just thinking about in terms of probability, it is very likely that they have. So there's clearly no incentive there. But even in smaller ways, there are plenty of rules that in theory, restaurants should be imposing or enforcing that are clearly not in their economic interests when they aren't being supported by the treasury in other ways. So for example, 
I went out for brunch with the other member of my own household at the weekend. And it was really, really clear to me that even though the restaurant was half empty, that most of the people around me couldn't possibly be from the same household. There was a business <laughs> meeting happening at the table beside me. These two men, <laughs> one man explaining some, some, I mean, they came in, they did the elbow thing. This man was explaining this thing to another man on his laptop. One of them was wearing a suit and I just thought, they were unlikely to be living under the same roof doing that. Household <laughs> business. <laughs> so, Who's doing the going... bathroom today? Who's doing the kitchen? <laughs> yeah, they, they were, I guess, suited and booted for their negotiation. You know, it was really clear. But why on earth would you, as a business, that it was clearly struggling anyway, why on earth would you say, hang on, I don't think that you can come in and spend money here mm, because yeah. you're clearly not from the same household? I think there are so many small things like that, that clearly businesses, if you have a health policy in place that affects them, businesses should be encouraged and supported to enforce those. I mean, there's even now, I mean, the whole thing about the 10 p.m. curfew in areas where there are higher restrictions, it doesn't really make any sense because there's no inherent risk to people if in theory they are only indoors with people from their own household. There's, there's no inherent risk anymore in them being there beyond 10 p.m. But they're just all these small things where you can see that the health response, we've talked about all the big ways before about how people don't often have the financial means to self-isolate for 14 days. But there are just millions of small ways where there are health rules that can't be implemented properly or aren't being implemented properly because they aren't being underpinned by the exchequer. And then there are like incentives from the treasury and messages from the treasury that are undermining the health response. And yeah, I mean, as you say, Stephen, when you think of it in terms of the the tension within cabinet, you think, oh, well, it's straightforward. You know, we have the health response and we have the economic response and they don't speak to each other at all because Matt Hancock and Rishi Sunak aren't you know meaningfully connecting on policy at all and Boris Johnson isn't linking the two up but then you actually observe and encounter the policies on the ground it's just sort of bonkers because clearly when you come up with certain guidelines you know if you're within the Department of Health and you're thinking you know how are we going to roll this policy out you must come up against the obstacles and difficulties that will just inevitably be there if the economic support is wrong. Then I think you kind of, you really see just like how, what a tangled mess it really is. Yeah, it's, it's your, your point about the, like, this stuff not being enforced is just that like, I sort of similarly like, well, I've been reviewing Tom Bauer's book, so I actually took the book to a local cafe alone just so I, you know, could read it, but into it. It was similarly like, yeah, half deserted. And like, you had like, there was actually like, before you come in, we can we ask, are you the same household? Including to two people who basically hugged outside. They're like, haven't seen you for ages. The kind of maitre d's just like, <laughs> before you come in, can I ask, are you the same household? They're like, yes. They're like, brilliant. In you can talk. Because... They, but this is the thing, it's just like it, it, this is this is like the social contract one oh one oh one, right? If if you want businesses to enforce something, you can't also be killing them. Yeah. Yeah, the whole the whole thing is just is just insane. <laughs> okay.
If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Us. Us. So we have a question from an anonymous listener for today's episode. Is it still appropriate to think of Keir Starmer as being on the soft left? If we had a leader from the Labour right, what would have been done differently? Stephen, do you want to start us off with that one? So my short answer is yes, of course it is. I think it's a a really interesting question. I think like, and I'm not saying I think this is where the question is coming from at all, but I think some people to Starmer's left have, I mean, it's not surprising because this is like, clearly this is a universal dynamic of the Labour Party, but have like just started to like drive themselves completely do lally, right? And then if this was a Labour leadership led from the actual right of the Labour Party, you would not have the tuition fee pledge would not still be there. Literally, that is also, by the way, the only spending pledge, as far as I'm aware, that any spending department has basically been told, by the way, before you get into anything else, you do understand you have to like make sure that this eight billion pounds or twelve billion, I think, you know, this twelve billion pounds, you know, you 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 are not allowed to touch that, right? And I think broadly on economic policy, right, like this is a Labour leadership that is to the left of, well, probably not to the left, not to the left of where Miliband himself was, but it's to the left of where Miliband led the Labour Party. That does, you know, still have commitments to a, a number of policy areas. I think actually, you know. In terms of someone else who like is broadly also from the soft left, but is perhaps slightly more on the right of the soft left than this leadership. If you want to give it, get a good example of that, look at some of the kind of trial balloons that have been floated by, say, Lisa Nandy, right? Where she did the whole kind of like, well, maybe these tax rises aren't going to stay because we're in a pandemic. Mm. And then Keir comes out and says to the Huffpo, well, of course, I still want to tax the the top 1%, yeah, whatever the, the 80%, the 80K threshold is, I think it is the top 1%, maybe it's the top 5% of, of earners. So on economics, right, this is still firmly on the soft left. And of course, you know, the, the fascinating thing about Keir's pivot on security issues is it both is and isn't a pivot, right? Because this is the same electoral calculation and strategy from the 2017 period onwards and arguably the same strategy that has been pursued with varying degrees of conviction from 2010 onwards of you just need to get Labour's problem in small towns both small towns it's held for 100 years or it held for 100 years until 2019 and small towns that are traditionally marginal like Stevenage and Harlow right but broadly that political approach hasn't changed it's just 
the two differences that have happened is one broadly everyone believes Keir Starmer a bit more when he says that he'll do those things than they did when Corbyn did. And two, of course, the government has brought forward a bunch of bills that are considerably, because obviously, you know, as long-time listeners will know, I, I whined a lot about um, some of the compromises on security that Corbyn made, but they are as nothing to the amount I dislike the ones that have been made more recently, but that is primarily because what the government itself is putting forward has changed. So yeah, I, I think this is still a very different leadership than if the Labour Party were led from its right. Yeah, I think I think ultimately the test is responses to policy. And like you say, you know, the bills that we've spoken about in recent weeks that sort of have exposed the way that Keir Starmer wants to sort of approach politically the subjects of security and you know all the human rights issues and, and other things bound up in those bills so those things you know Corbyn didn't didn't have a chance to whip his party either way for those so we don't know what he would have done on those on those subjects although of course he's made his own votes so it's difficult to tell the difference between what two different Labour leaders would have done when that when the policy tests are different particularly in this time because I think you know the Labour Party has been accused a lot over the past few months of of not coming up with its own policy solutions to the pandemic but it's also been a sort of zombie time for policy in general and we haven't really heard much beyond like you say Lisa Nandy's comments about the tax rises promised by Keir Starmer in his leadership campaign and we haven't heard much beyond the kind of policy interventions that have been made on what the furlough scheme should look like in future and and things that are very very tightly bound up in sort of a pandemic response where the policies of the conservative government no one could have predicted that they would be doing that they would have to do any of the the type of policies that they've introduced over this time so it's difficult to kind of work out what the opposition's response means <laughs> when it's in response to sort of the, the biggest sort of state interventions that have, that have ever been made in, in a generation or, or in memory. So it's hard to kind of put the Labour Party on a, on a scale of left to right when these are the very, very specific circumstances that it's operating in. But I would say that, you know, Stephen mentioned Ed Miliband. And for me, Ed Miliband is sort of a sort of prime example of a of a soft left Labour politician and also is probably the most recent example that that we have of, of a soft left Labour leader. And he has played quite a central role in Keir Starmer's leadership so far. And for example, his analysis of the job support scheme, incentivising sort of keeping on one full timer for two part timers and just sort of showing Rishi Sunak's support scheme up for its failures. I thought that kind of analysis was clearly front and centre of Labour's response to the ongoing economic response for the, from the government. And I think that, that that suggests that sort of Ed Miliband's kind of thinking and his kind of analyses and interventions are being put centre stage. And it's also an example of the way that the Labour Party is in general trying to scrutinise government policy. It did a good job over the evidence that it gathered of local lockdowns, the majority of local lockdowns not working because the cases were, were still rising in those places as well. So they've done kind of their own original analysis, which shows that their, their sort of level of scrutiny I think has been quite effective. But again, you know, it doesn't tell you much about the politics of the Labour Party because what they're responding to is just sort of off the, the political scale that we all know and love. It's interesting because I think that probably that question speaks to the thing we always talk about on this podcast, but the efforts of, of Labour under its new leadership to speak to a broad coalition of voters and to 
pitch to a slightly more socially conservative voter base, the voters that that Labour lost, and also the ones it's really trying to cling on to, and these the break that Starmer is trying to make with the Corbyn era in terms of the the noises that come out over patriotism and and national security and so on. I think that probably like that the question is is about that and it's funny that when you actually look at where labor is as you've both put really well when you look at the economic positions they are clearly of the soft left and there are tangible examples of what like a right-leaning labor leader would have been doing differently but I wonder if if there are differences in terms of the messaging and that sort of pitch to socially conservative voters I wonder if that is any different or exactly the same as we would have seen from a Labour leader who was further to the right because I'm still just really fascinated by this I mean I can really clearly see what the strategy is and how it appears to be working but I still wonder how it will affect you know in in the Labour election review they talk about the the different groups of voters, they don't talk with, about them just in terms of, you know, Northern Brexiteers or or London metropolitan elites. They sort of break the voter groups down much more precisely. And I can't remember the names of the ones I'm thinking about right now, but they're kind of the two groups that held firm for Labour at the last election were the most socially liberal ones. They have different characteristics, even though they kind of overlap. But, you know, this is sort of you can imagine the sort of like young progressive liberals graduates those kinds of people I just sort of wonder if the noises coming out of Labour seem a bit different and that's the group that Labour I think implicitly thinks that it can hold on to without really needing to speak too much at the moment because they've stuck with with Labour so firmly I wonder whether their support will be affected by some of the messages that make I think Starmer's leadership come across as more right-wing if you don't follow politics very closely than it really Mm. is in terms of its substance. Yeah, I think so. The the option that Labour would have if it was led further to its right, and I partly bring this up because I just think this is a trade-off that like not enough people on the left really seem to understand that they have made. Ditto, I think lots of people didn't quite seem to understand, like, you know, with the whole, like, look, guys, you, you can be a yeah, you can have Corbyn as leader or you can be an anti-Brexit party, but if the one thing you definitely did not want to do is go into an election as both, which is that you can be a more liberal party, small L, well, sorry, I guess big L, if you are willing to be more right-wing economically. But they just broadly just aren't enough left liberals in the United Kingdom, right? So you have to do something to get a majority otherwise. And so I think, you know, if, if Labour had been led from its right in terms of the candidate that was available i lisa and andy a bit but i really think to be honest the political difference between the two approaches would be near identical right i think they actually the the functional differences between a nandy party and a starmer party would be teeny tiny it's really hard to say in terms of the available candidate because jess phillips is so inexperienced right then i think you really would have seen a a labor party really buffeted by its various forces and people in just a completely different way you know ultimately these things we don't know to what extent Labour's positioning and it's gambled and like the voters either lo- it loses their in places where they don't matter because yeah this thing's like 
sitting here in Stoke Newington, right? Like the Labour majority, which went down in 2019, is still bigger than it was in 2005 or 2001 and indeed 1997. So one of the arguments is, well, like, yeah, okay, you lose a bunch of voters and the Lib Dems feel a bit better about themselves, but who cares? And then the other is, but you also do gain 200 votes in Blythe Valley, but you lose 300 to the Greens, so you're you're still losing by 74 votes. So that's like the big known unknown. But Labour's authoritarian position cannot be separated from its economic left-right position, like in terms of the overall strategy. And mm. if, if you want to govern alone, which obviously I, I as a long-term PR person, I'm not particularly bothered by, but lots of people in the Labour Party are very het up about wanting to govern alone. If you want to govern alone, then you are in the kind of like, do you become more liberal, but the left-right position shifts a lot? Do you become more authoritarian and you can broadly win with something that is like, and you try and win with like something a bit 2017-y? And they've chosen to do the, the latter option. I just um, find the groups I was speaking about, there were actually three different distinct groups mm-hmm. of voters under that umbrella, the progressive cosmopolitans, younger Instagram progressives and the green left. It does kind of exemplify this problem, as you say, because the thing I'm always perplexed by or have been perplexed by kind of recently is that if you speak to people within the Labour Party or look at that election review, in theory, the strategy is is technically kind of to do neither of the approaches that you were describing, Stephen. Like in theory, it's a third way that commands even greater support where you don't make a trade-off either way, but you, rather than deciding to be more authoritarian or less, you just dial all of that down and your message is much more focused on the economics and it is a broadly 2017-like economic offer. But then I think in practice, I don't think that they are dialing down those things. They are, as you say, Stephen, I think, making more authoritarian noises. And when you look at those groups, the groups that have really stuck with Labour, like younger liberals, progressive, the green left, like looking back at, at the thing I wrote on the Labour election review, you know, the things that mark them out are not feeling particularly patriotic and having quite profoundly different instincts on crime and on retribution. And I think, yeah, it is those noises that Labour has been making. I mean, they have tried to, on certain issues, which like they clearly genuinely care about, you know, they've been promoting Black History Month and still take progressive stances on plenty of things. But clearly the, like, the messaging has moved massively to the right. I just wonder, because it's not so much broken down in polling or whatever, and mm. I mean, maybe it doesn't matter if, you know, there are 500 disillusioned green left progressives in Stoke Newington who don't vote Labour next time because of the gains elsewhere. But yeah, I think that I think that that is the great unknown of the strategy. I also think all bets are off in this political climate, because like I was saying earlier in the podcast, you know, whether or not they liked it or not, you had a conservative run government that was paying for people's meals and paying people's salaries you know you've, you've got normal left right spectrum which has already been put out of whack by leave remain divides and metropolitan and non-metropolitan divides and open and closed or however you want to put the sort of the new sort of wavelengths of politics it's already been put out and now and now the policies that have been brought in 
during COVID-19 have, have thrown the whole thing completely out of whack again. So, you know, I'll interview someone who's on the front line, who's furious about Boris Johnson failing her and putting her safety at risk, but who also sort of can't stand the idea of Keir Starmer not coming up with his own solutions. And, you know, you, you have all of these sort of, and someone else who who hates, it, hates that Andy Burnham is holding out against a tier three, but loves the fact that Keir Starmer put Boris Johnson into the trap of, of creating a dividing line between Boris Johnson and the government scientists by supporting the circuit breaker national lockdown and sort of sees a division between those two people. And I just think obviously leadership has a lot to do with tone, but also I think in this period, the tone of leadership has been completely shaped by by whole new forces that could throw up some quite strange results. I mean, we don't we don't know what's going to happen next. And, and and of course, there's not going to be another general election for a while. But I mean, the strategy, whatever strategy you're building to try and build a new voter coalition or try and patch up the voters that you've lost, I think depends on a whole new set of factors now. Yeah, one of the reasons I, I'm so glad we did this question, and I think it's such an interesting one, is that isn't so for example if you ask someone to do like a political compass or you know thought about their lineage within the Labour Party who is the most right-wing member of Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet it's probably Rachel Reeves Hmm. who is also the kind of like but what what is Rachel Reeves a brief it is ending out sourcing criticizing Serco all of the like stuff she was doing as shadow base secretary which was basically broadly aligned with the analysis of what had gone wrong with outsourcing and Whitehall provision, yeah, then kind of like the, the finest minds of Corbynism had and the reason why they felt that Carillion's collapse was such a validation of how they saw Whitehall's failings and the failings of the last 40 years on that issue. Effectively, who is the most right-wing person in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet in terms of what they actually do in their job it's Bridget Phillips and the Chief Secretary to the Treasury because she's the person who has to wander around going, is that managed expenditure or departmental expenditure limits? You need to tell me which one it is, right? So your the, the left-right position of your team is, in of itself, is so wholly situation-specific about, like, where you put, put various people, what the sort of um, commonalities, right? Because one of the, like, big, big commonalities that the Shadow Cabinet has is they're all really quite left wing in terms of like welfare spending in terms of the positions they've advanced in the past and the things they believe on there and and on that issue in general and as you say Anoush because like I suspect right that the big political dividing line between the big parties the big two parties on economics which we're kind of all forgetting at the moment because it's just not an issue will be tax Mm. not just because of the pledges Keir has already made on income tax but because if you think that um then debt is a long-term constraint. Now, obviously, everyone in the Labour Party, indeed the IMF, large chunks of the Conservative Party, sometimes it feels like, with the exception of Rishi Sunak, almost everyone doesn't believe the debt is a constraint right now. If you believe the debt is a constraint over the long term, as the leaderships of both parties do, then the, one of the questions I have is, well, look, what are you going to do to taxes in order to like get the public finances on a sustainable footing? And the Conservative Party, I think, is not going to be able to get very far on the tax rises, but is understandably very nervous about the electoral implications of being like, let's have more cuts. Whereas this Labour Party, this shadow Treasury team is not one that is going to, I think, be particularly worried about talking about things like land value taxes and and other kind of fairly radical bits of redistribution. So I think in terms of the, the sort of radicalism point, 
I actually still wouldn't be surprised if by the time of the election, far from everyone going, oh, the thing about Keir Starmer's Labour Party is it's like really authoritarian, then people are actually going, oh, the thing about Keir Starmer's Labour Party is that like it wants to change the tax system in quite a big way. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Anusha Kellyan. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Yeah. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.